This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the latest instalment of How Many Times Can I Squeeze in a Sport Conversation That Scott Doesn't Want to Have, otherwise known as the minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Philip Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Have I shoehorned us into something today, Scott, successfully? Okay, this didn't take really any persuasion. Um, That's probably true. But can can I give a slight account of my reticence? Of, uh, of this show? Not generally. my reticence of this show in particular, although I do have a couple... I don't have a reticence about this discussion. I, okay. have, a, I have a concern about the topic. Uh-huh. But I think I need to oh, say geez. something sort of more generally about my reticence about sport. Okay. I'm genuinely torn, Willie. Um, and this isn't feigned ambivalence. This is real ambivalence. That the, the philosophical tradition that most nourishes me sees life as an integrated whole. It is interesting that Aristotle, for instance, had no word for moral. Uh, The word that we now understand as virtue, he probably would have understood as something much, much closer to to excellence. Um, Uh, Do you know what's so interesting about that? hmm. Is It's the same, I would say, in the Islamic tradition. And it's the same in Hebrew, incidentally. Right. So Hmm. the word, uh, probably the closest parallel is ihsan, which is, yeah, excellence is Hmm. probably the... Yeah, it's like the superlative of that which is good, so, so which is, is fascinating. So when you're saying the minute you start using words like moral, yeah, you carve out an aspect of life that simply that inheres apply. that simply inheres to life. So that a mm. life that is li- lived well is a life that is morally lived. It's for that reason, for instance, that one of the great inheritors of the Aristotelian tradition, um, Elizabeth Anscombe, argued fiercely that we should begin carving the very notion of morality out of the way that we talk. She said it's introducing a category, a subdivision into the nature of human conduct that, uh, that distorts. We, don't, we simply don't have the cultural or the spiritual architecture to make sense of the language of morality. Um, so anyway, this is a slightly long way of, of saying that the, the idea that life is kind of carved up into the mental or the intellectual aspect and the aesthetic aspect and the political aspect and the physical aspect or in the spiritual aspect and that these things can all be either dealt with separately or neglected respectively is such a completely foreign notion within the history of philosophy as to make it almost incomprehensible you know for aristotle for plato for the stoics right through to to seneca even in someone like marcus aurelius the idea that someone would be say spiritually impoverished but philosophically or intellectually rich and uh, physically neglecting is, again, incomprehensible. If you succeed or you flourish in one aspect of life, that is only possible because of your determination to practice certain things like self-control, self-sacrifice, modesty, prudence in other areas of life. So I, I, I think the idea that we can talk about philosophy and not talk about, say, sport or the kind of distinctive forms of cooperation and rule following and virtuosity and non-rule following, but following the spirit of the game rather than simply the rules of the game. The fact that the idea that we can talk about philosophy or morality and not talk about sport is, is kind of strange to me. I, uh, th- those things okay. necessarily go together. And yet... So why are you torn? And yet, at the same time, I can't help but think, and maybe it's because we've carved ourselves away from some of the ideas that nurture that deeper, that richer, that fuller philosophical tradition, I fear constantly that sport, instead of nurturing some of those philosophical or moral dispositions, may well be bringing out some of our worst tendencies. So, I mean, just just for instance, I, I've long worried that sport uh, appeals to the worst aspects of our tendency towards tribalism and outgroup disdain. Um, Let me just give you one very, very simple example, and it's an example that I'm constantly guilty of. You hate the Lakers, don't you? Well, that's what this is about. When you love a team and Mm. you hate another team, 
it's very difficult to see the excellence that is going on at the hands of the other team without perceiving that excellence as vanity, as gaming the system, um, as doing everything that you can in order to kind of skew the results. Um, uh, I'm not an, sure about, an impartial about figure, this point. An impartial figure, like a referee, when they make a call that's advantageous to my team, even though that figure is supposed to be, advan- is supposed to be impartial, I can't help but see that call as being necessarily right. Whereas if, it's, if it seems to be something that consistently over the course of a game favors the other team, it's very difficult not to see that as well. You're giving due deference because there are an increased number of stars on the other team, for instance. Yeah, I, I, I recognise what you're saying. Like, this clearly happens, but I, I think it's entirely possible to hate a team and yet respect what they're doing. Of course. And respect their virtue. But that actually takes... Okay. I would say, Willie, that takes cultivation. I mean, it actually... It, it, it takes a certain degree of will and Sometimes. a kind of working I, against it, one's own interests. <laughs> sort of. It's also, it also can just be a disposition. Um, and it also depends, I find, who you're watching games with. Yeah, that's so true. So this is one of the things I, I think has been a genuine downside of... I don't know what you would call it, but the, the increased dominance of reserved seating in... Certainly in the AFL, um, probably less so in the NRL, hmm. where if you say you're a member of a club and you have a reserved seat like I am, you know every time you go to a home game, you're going to be surrounded only by people of your persuasion. And so it, it's such an interesting experience if by whatever happenstance you are sitting amongst the members of another team. It's like, oh, my God, I didn't realise that other people thought the umpires favoured us. Mm. <laughs> right. That's so right. you, you do get that. That's a Whereas wonderful I think, point. That's a wonderful Yeah, point. I think there is a, a time, there, there was a time at least in my sport-going life where you would just, and you still can do this in general admission, but I feel like it happened more in the past, where you would be surrounded by all kinds of characters, um, people who cared more about the game than others, people who were there for a laugh, people for whom this was life and death, people for whom, who, sorry, who barred for both teams, neutrals were even there, and it sort of gave you a bit more of a rounded experience, whereas now the siloing of fans, I think, has a detriment. There's something that we've lost. That, I should say, there's also something that we've gained. I've been to, I'm fortunate to have been to quite a few Premier League games, and the separation of the fans is actually one of its great secrets because what you get is blocks of fans, and because the stadium is relatively small, because the pitch is small, they can sing at each other, and it's quite extraordinary the way there's this ongoing conversation, right? And they're all teasing each other, and sometimes they're singing quite horrible things. But here's the bit I think that's missing from your analysis. When those sorts of rivalries are going on and the sort of hatred that's there... It's a hatred of brothers and sisters. I hope so. Right. So I hate Collingwood. Let me be really clear about that. I hate Manchester United. Let me be clear about that. But I hate them with the knowledge that we are together part of a going concern Mm, mm. and that I need them. Without them there, like their existence and my hatred for them is half of the meaning of my club. You need your mortal you need your mortal enemy. You need your yeah. supervillain, yeah. And we are kind of aware at some meta level, even though I might feel this hatred of them viscerally. We're aware at a meta level that we're in this together, that there's there's kind of a pact that's going on, and it shows up when you put us in the mutually in the presence of someone who doesn't like our sport or doesn't like sport generally. Now there's a really profound solidarity, yeah. right? Um, so I need to preserve their existence in order that I may go to war gleefully. That's, yeah. the, that's the way it works. Okay, please let me pick you up on that, though. Okay. So I agree with that entirely. Of course you're right. That competition within fraternal bonds, the idea that when push comes to shove, there is something there that binds us together more than what separates us. I think that's absolutely right, and the idea of... Okay, I mean, it's not even friendly competition. It really is hostility. And if the hostility is only feigned, then it takes something, I think, essential out of the spirit of the game. That hostility has to be real. Here's my problem, though. I fear constantly that there are certain forces at work that are warring against even the very notion of fraternity at that point. So, for instance, uh, one of the things that has emerged, particularly over the last 15 years, that scares me constantly 
is that the necessary sense of sacrifice for the sake of the team, that just because I'm the one that got the goal, I'm the one that got the winning basket, all of that was made possible by the role of role players, of people with less prominence, people who set everything up in advance uh, for that final kind of coup de grace to happen. And then the necessary either modesty or the team orientedness of the celebration that then happens. All of those things seem to me to be essential to the proper act of celebration after a goal, a victory, or whatever. Mm. And they vary from team to team. They so vary. some teams do enact that ethic. Yes, they do. Uh, indeed, one of the teams I support had a rule about you don't celebrate with the crowd. Yes, You celebrate brilliant. with your teammates. Brilliant. And Absolutely then other teams brilliant. don't do that. Absolutely brilliant. So those become questions of team culture. Yes. But have you noticed that we've also seen the rise of two things that I think are, are uh, they both exist along the same continuum. One is the over-the-top celebration uh, after some big moment after some big score, after some big win. Uh, the person that I dislike most, who is perhaps most guilty of this, is someone like LeBron James. Um, I could do a whole thing with you on the, yes, he is a champion. Yes, he's probably one of the greatest players of all time. And yet he has been singularly destructive to every single team he has ever played for. Uh, because the team that he plays for exists in order to constitute the footstools to his throne. Um, mm, won a lot of championships. Yeah, and then he dismissed the very players that he won those championships with, with when they were no longer useful for the future. I mean, yeah, but to, to say he's a disaster zone makes no sense. I mean, he goes, look what he did with Cleveland. Yeah, I, this this is a longer conversation. Um, okay. But but then you have the whole thing of taunting. So something happens, a goal is scored, a dunk is made, and then there's that, that act of deliberately physical imposition onto one's opponents, whereby one either actively tries to humiliate them, you are less of a man than me, you are too small to guard me, you stand no chance against me, you're a little poser running around in the same field as me, uh, or those acts of deliberate displays of, I mean, what I really think are kind of sporting contempt, where the other person is being made to feel uh, demeaned, diminished as the result of this person's physical superiority. That, it seems to me, has no place within any real sporting competition. I mean, there, there's moments of relief, I think, when a genuinely intimidating foe is overcome. I think there are those moments of spontaneous celebration when I can't believe we climbed this mountain. I can't believe we surpassed this particular impediment. But I think those moments in a social media saturated age are then allowed to punctuate, are allowed to pock and puncture every moment so that these, so that these forms of kind of contemptuous demeaning celebration uh, are kind of made for social media. These are all the things I think that are warring against what really are the deeper impulses, the more virtuous aspects of a sporting culture. That means that it's not just about the individual, that it is about the acts of sacrifice, of, uh, of modesty, uh, that need to exist in order for a team culture to be a successful team culture and not just a footstool upon which a particular star player. And, and just notice as well, Willie, that so many of our teams are being advertised by the faces of their particular star player. This is yeah. also, I think, part of the commodification of celebrity and the indulgence in a certain cult of celebrity that I, it, it's impossible for me to think that this isn't deleterious to the very culture, the internal workings of the teams themselves. Okay, I have a few thoughts on that. One is, um, yeah, th those acts of kind of intimidatory celebration are kind of lording it over your defeated opponent. I, th I think they can work in multiple ways. One is that um, it genuinely is gross. It it's genuinely a kind of... It's the most um, morally loaded word of the conversation so far. It I love it. It's is, wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. Uh, it seems somehow to fit, but then when I said it, it didn't fit as well. No, it's good. No, um, I like it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's something genuinely... But, but actually gross in both of its forms. Yes, D that's, disdainful, that's, disdainful and too big, too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking. But, but at the same time, it's different when it works within a code. Yeah. So this is part of the toing and froing. It stays within the court. We respect each other 
off it, but this is part of the raising of the stakes within the context of mm. the contest. And what it does is it provides the platform for the return of serve, right? Mm. Um, and you do see this, right? Sometimes it has to do with the way in which hostilities have unfolded. I have less of a problem with it when it's following an inherent logic of the match. Mm. Someone True. has tried to impose themselves physically. You've then gone and scored uh, in response to that. And then you're basically physically communicating with them. All right, is that all you've got? Mm. What, what next? Mm. Right. I think, I think there's something there that's about throwing, the throwing down of gauntlets. Yep. And I don't want to be too prescriptive when you're talking, particularly in the realm of professional sport. I think you have to allow a certain latitude for these things. Of course you do. Um, but all that aside, I feel like... The criticisms you're making, they're, yeah, they're, they're perfectly valid. But really what you're describing are sort of quite pervasive features of contemporary culture. That's right. So these things just show Perfect. up in everything. And so to talk about it in the context of sport as though it's about sport, I think misses something really important. You said something before where... I actually can't remember exactly what you said, but I'll tell you what it put me in mind of. It put, and, and it d delivers us to the other half of today's topic, which is, I think you were talking about the, the nature of virtue mm. within uh, uh, something like sport and how very often what sport does is it provides actually an outlet for those things that are the opposite of virtue, that are really vices. And so it made me think, as you were saying that, well, what would you say of commerce? Mm -hmm. Because I, I suspect you could make exactly the same argument about commerce. Um, there is something noble, even historically, in the figure of the trader, mm -hmm. right? The person who provides things for communities, um, who by enriching themselves nonetheless provides a kind of civilizing and civilizational service for people who might spend their whole lives traveling, you know, vast uh, distances in order to source goods that they can then you know, return back to their homeland with and, and sell in that sort of way. And there's, mm. something, there's something genuinely admirable about that character, even though there is uh, clearly a pecuniary interest that they have. Aristotle, in... well, late Aristotle called the commercial figure and the very act of commerce, the exchange of coin, he called it the soul of the city. It is the breath right. that permeates the life of a common people whom fate have thrown together. And yet... And yet. Who could... <laughs> argue against the proposition that commerce has its incredibly corrupting expressions, mm -hmm. right? Where greed takes over, where self-aggrandizement becomes the idea, where the vanquishing of one's commercial enemies becomes the, the target, where people mm -hmm. seek monopolies, etc. Right. I was um, right. really interested, I just happened to come across this description in a book recently, of the, generations ago, the way that markets would work in a place like Syria. And, you know, often in markets you have people selling the same sorts of goods. And it was kind of apparently, I, mean, I didn't know anything about this, but it was apparently a common practice that amongst the merchants there, if one was doing particularly well and they'd reached a point where they'd sold enough for the day, they would leave the market <laughs> so as to allow other people to sell their, their wares and earn their living. In other words, they didn't press home their market advantage wow. in that moment. Um, the, the right thing to do was to leave. I've had right. enough, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got what yeah. I need. My mm -hmm. needs are met, and now I can... Now, we would probably in our age call that inefficient mm -hmm. behaviour or something. Um, it would be a market distortion of some sort, I guess. Um, but there's an ethic that underwrites that. I guess what I'm saying is the, the criticisms that you want to make of sport you could make of just about every other essential and frequently noble aspect of life. Mm -hmm. And so we return, I think, more to your original point on which we agree, which is it makes the most sense to think of moral traditions as describing and, and aiming to inculcate a whole Mm, that's right. Right. Rather than being discreet in some way. All right, here's where I be moral and here's where I don't be. Mm. Um, here's the realm of moral thinking and then the, I go about the rest of my life. Um, no, the idea is it should infuse everything. But if that's the case, then we should not be at all surprised when everything has its moral and immoral sorts of expressions. Mm, perfect. Well, what said. I want to ask you before we bring in our guest... I do have a brief I response we... to that, by the way, when you, when you oh, have a moment. Okay, go on. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I don't disagree with anything that you just said, and I wasn't trying to over-egg the pudding necessarily. Um, it does seem to me, though, that sport is one of those remnants that we have in common life of, of something like an honor culture 
there are things that are valued within sport that are not valued that are or that are decreasingly valued elsewhere so for instance the idea the idea that one player on a team might succeed at the expense of or at the cost of the immiseration of other players or of the team culture cuts so violently against the grain of the way that we think about sport and sporting codes as to render that sport almost unrecognizable the idea that uh, my sacrifice couldn't lead necessarily to the betterment of the team as a whole, or that I at certain point might have to sacrifice statistics in order to better team culture. These are all things that are peculiar, I think, to a very, very, very few and vanishingly few organizations um, within our common life, and sport is one of them. When you said that what you've just described is not so much about sport but about culture as a whole, that's the point. We need these educational institutions, these institutions that hold up something like a moral witness that then allow certain hard-fought values, certain crucial virtues to permeate through the rest. And it's when those institutions then take on some of the worst, more deleterious uh, characteristics of society as a whole, they lose their distinctiveness. They just become a kind of mirror image of whatever the prevailing fashion is. So I think while they at certain vital points, I just don't want sports persons to worry about efficiencies. I don't want the cult of celebrity to, to infiltrate. I don't want made-for-social-media packages that then bastardize and corrupt the sporting pro uh, product so that people will only watch five-minute summaries of highlights rather than the, the ebb and flow and the internal drama of the sports themselves. So I think that's where, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you said. I, I guess my issue is it could, in fact, be that if we preserve the educational value, the moral qualities that are inherent to sport, they might let us remember the holism, the totalities of virtues that we then ought to be able to rediscover once again in fields okay. like commerce and politics and society. Ag agreed. Agreed. I just find it curious that sport always seems to be the one that's singled out for these things. Because it's one of the last institutions where something like honour and self-sacrifice makes sense to us. Yeah, but it often expresses itself in a kind of anti-sport attitude, right? Or like the ambivalence that I tried to register uh, at the beginning. I don't know. I think your better argument would be to say it's the great, the last great hope. <laughs> but you never make that one, do you, Scott? No, I'm not going to make that one. Yeah, but why not? Yeah. I mean, because I because I probably don't believe it. But I think I think but, but I think it it's under like threat. You do believe it, actually. It sounds like because you said it. It offers certain things, the embodiment of certain virtues that nothing else seems to be offering at the moment. You might say it's under threat, but the fact that it embodies it apparently uniquely or close to uniquely um, in your vision means that you should be holding it up as the last great hope. All right. Shouldn't you? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm just not there yet. Maybe I, I mean, can I could make, Yeah, because I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure I would quite go that far myself. Yeah. I, I think, <laughs> I I think you could, because, only because I think you can see evidence of these things elsewhere, right? I mean, you, you can see it in the arts. Mm. The arts simultaneously. One of the great mm. things about That's an true. ensemble piece is you, def, by definition, have role players, right? You have, That's right. Um, what's that saying? There are no small parts, only small actors. Yes. Um, yeah. So you have that sort of ethic, but you can't deny the celebrification of the arts. Mm. It, the creation of superstar. I, I think it's really interesting, apart from just the evolution of musical tastes, for example, the disappearance of the band. Mm, that's right. And the way that's given way to the Absolutely. solo artist almost exclusively now, to the, the extent that... The solo artist with, with producer. The solo artist with producer. Um, yeah. And the yeah. producer is responsible for the music, yeah. I think that's yeah, right. that's probably right. But can I say, before we get to our guests, because we should acknowledge this is a weird topic, and the reason it's a weird topic is we have a guest who's threaded these things together, <laughs> specifically sport and economics in the pursuit of a fair society. And I just love, like, hugely um, ambitious synthetic projects like that. I think it's wonderful when someone tries to take that on. And we didn't just organically dream up this kind of attempt to stitch these things together. It was kind of brought to our attention and that's why we've ended up here. Mm. But as a starting point for speaking to our guest about it, can we agree that what the foregoing conversation um, necessarily assumes is that sport has lessons for life for us? Yes. Heavens, Great. yes. Okay. Heavens, yes. Good. 
I think we've done really well. It's about as well as we've done. On that note, let's bring in our guest. Our guest is Andrew Lee. He's the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury. After this conversation, I suspect it's going to be for Treasury and Sport. Uh, and he's also the federal <laughs> member for Fenner in the ACT. His latest book is Fair Game, Lessons from Sport for a Fairer Society and a Stronger Economy. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for lead. Great to be with you. And what a wonderful lead-in conversation. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, so let, let's begin with sport itself. Look, I loved the book. I loved your description of sport. I loved what really was a kind of Aristotelian depiction of sport as individual and as communal excellence. And as an excellence which, when perfected or when sought in one area of life, necessarily either trickles through or can enlighten other aspects of life. I love that. There are many people, however, Andrew, who are going to read your description of sport in that book and say that it's a description of sport which is vanishing, which is under threat from uh, cultural issues within and economic or cultural pressures without. I'm going to hand it over to you now. Well, thanks, Scott. I think the uh, vision of sport that I'm putting forward is not uh, always realised. Certainly there's aspects of sport. You think about sledging at its worst or ball tampering in cricket. Uh, but I do believe that those values of sacrifice, courage and kindness are replete in sport. Uh, just think about Harry Garside recently at the Tokyo Olympics, winning our first Olympic boxing medal in a generation and then holding open the ropes to allow his opponent to exit the, the ring. Or think about the uh, trophy that we use uh, for our biggest uh, champions in N NRL. Uh, that trophy shows two opposing captains, Norm Proven and Arthur Summons, embracing after the 1963 grand final. Uh, you go to Melbourne Olympic Park and there's a statue of John Landy, uh, not celebrating just how fast he ran, but honouring that moment where he stopped to help a fallen Ron Clark on the track uh, and then went on to win the race afterwards. Uh, so sport at its best can be that kind of full package that you described in the introduction. You know, Bradman talked about uh, how it was important for him and a great athlete to see somebody who conducted their life with dignity, integrity, courage and modesty. Uh, and I think, too, about your terrific quarterly essay in which you described the erosion of politics through contempt. Uh, I think we see much less contempt on the sporting field uh, than we do in other areas of public life. Oh, Scott, are you uh, going to go with that? Because I think I agree with Andrew on it, at the very least, that last sentiment. Look, I hope so. I mean, I truly do hope so. But I worry constantly that such is the pressure for athletes to commodify themselves and to become things that can be consumed by fans that only that are addicted effectively to highlights uh, as the new burgeoning market, that athletes are being encouraged actively to become increasingly contemptuous. There was a there was a moment for me in 2017, this rivalry between the Golden State Warriors and Cleveland Cavaliers that had become, I mean, really quite seismic in, in, in many respects. It was between LeBron James, this kind of hulking uh, um, presence of a man who imposed himself upon the court and the game by sheer will and physical prowess versus the kind of the mercurial, impish Steph Curry. And there's one moment where Steph Curry in 2017 during the, I think it was game five of the finals, Steph Curry goes up for a... Uh, for a contested layup, and LeBron James swats it down, sticks his chest straight up into the smaller Curry's face and looks at him with this disdain of, it wasn't big brother, little brother. It was more of a get the hell off my court kind of thing. And there was something about that that was, I don't know, it felt to me like the apex, like the pinnacle of something that had been developing and developing and now it's it seems to me everywhere from He's only doing that because Steph Curry's so good though. No. He does it because he thinks that Steph Curry is his inferior. I mean he said this and has no business being in the same conversations that he does. He thinks yeah, yeah, of him as a that, poser. But that can only be true because Steph Curry's in that conversation. Okay. So there's a certain like I'm just saying, even, even at the hottest rivalries that have defined my life, Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, uh, Robert Parrish and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that sort of thing would have never happened between those because there was that 
competition of fraternity that you talked about before, Walid. And I just feel that there's this, there's the celebrification and there's the com- the self commodification of celebrities that's working against this very refusal of contempt that I think has long been okay. a part of uh, this, sport. This leads me to a question very that time- I. Well, can I just say, at the very time in which uh, those events are happening, and as I said, sport is not perfect, you've also got the extraordinary leadership of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and setting off a movement within sport which ripples through American society. And so often, sport has led national conversations around racial injustice, around sexism, around homophobia. You know, think of Adam Goods, uh, think about Ian Roberts, uh, think about Billie Jean King, uh, all of them taking stands for equality, which then flow out and have an impact on the broader economy. I, as I listen Colin to Kaepernick example, was very controversial, though, because of the historical connection between the NFL and the armed services in, in, in the US. And I mean, that remains to this day a very, uh, still quite a divisive uh, moment within American culture. Yeah. But one that uh, that showed bravery, showed courage, yeah, and which uh, rippled out and caused changes through society. Mm. You know, you look at the vitriol directed towards Ian Roberts when he yeah, came out right. as gay in 1995, but it enabled so many teenage boys to suddenly say, you know, they could they could go to school and feel like they could, they could be what they truly were. Uh, so those those stances taken taken by sports people, the grace that sports stars have sometimes shown. Uh, I'd love to see a little bit more of that uh, that reflected in the economy, that notion that we don't have to choose between fairness and excellence, that we can have both in the ideal, holistic package. One of the things that I found interesting about your book and about the the examples that you use, and even the ones you cited here of a kind of sportsmanship, and I'd put Kaepernick to one side because that was a communication on a political issue to the public at large rather than something within the game. It's not the same thing as the the summons proven thing or something like that. They do tend to come from a, a an amateur era or amateur context. Mm. They they tend to come from a what you might say a world of sport that's pre-commercialization. And that's fascinating to me because when you want to for example draw economic lessons from them and you do um, it seems to me there are some of the sort of free market lessons you might draw where you talk, for example, about the benefit to players and their wages, for example, in the free movement of players, so their ability to, to contract freely in a competitive market where there are lots of teams who might be able to win the championship or something like that. That's from the professional era. But the ethical stuff you're talking about tends to come from a pre-professional era where the stakes weren't so high, the money wasn't so big and so on. And I wonder whether or not these two things are mutually exclusive. Is it, can you realise both dimensions of these or does the economic, the free market aspect of sport necessarily compromise the virtue aspect of sport that you want to identify? Well, still in professional sport, you want to ensure a degree of competitive balance. So you look at the Australian economy uh, over the last 40 years, and you've basically had four of the biggest five firms staying on the top of the share market. Commonwealth Bank, NAB, BHP and Westpac uh, have sat atop the Australian stock market for the last 40 years. No sporting code has seen that degree of stasis. In all sports, we have this notion that you want the wooden spooners from one year to be able to have the potential to win the grand final the next year. Uh, that's why we have the draft. That's why we have revenue sharing. Uh, that's why there are, there's this notion that fluidity is a good thing in the game. Uh, that brings in fresh talents, and uh, uh, we see a, lot, a much better job being done within sport to scout out talent in unexpected places than we see in the economy. Uh, too many startup founders tend to be uh, white men whose parents started a, started a company themselves rather than people from atypical backgrounds. So we're leaving a lot of talent, economic talent on the table uh, and sport can potentially teach us how to find good talent across society. Yet at the same time, the examples mm. that you mentioned there, the salary caps, the draft, etc., they actually only apply to particular sports, to American sports, to the Australian codes. I, I follow Australian sports obviously very closely and very passionately, but I also follow the world game passionately. And there it's the exact opposite. There, there are no salary caps. Behemoths really can arise. Success is rewarded with more financial clout, which means more success. Uh, you do get an ossification of 
the best teams in the world that shows up in the Champions League. Real Madrid will always be there. Bayern Munich will always be there. Um, Manchester United, let's different sort of story. <laughs> That's mismanagement. Um, Liverpool have sort of returned to their sort of Kings of Europe crown lately, made a lot of Champions League finals. Like the, the usual suspects are there with the occasional team from outside kind of coming to the party. And yet what you could say about that is that sort of unleashing of limitlessness of the free market, it's the most capitalist form of sport that you could come up with. Hmm. It has created the best football that has ever been played. It, like, it's, it's created teams that do things that would just have been unimaginable to any earlier generation who might have been able to see more teams do what you described, come from the bottom to the top. But it's like football has just like concertedly made a decision that's not what they're after. And there's a certain benefit that they're reaping there too. So how far can you go withdrawing those sorts of economic lessons from the sporting universe. I'd much rather see an Australian economy that looks more like AFL than like US baseball or the UK Premier League. Now, one survey I saw a few years ago suggested that half of all Premier League fans were Manchester United fans. And that ossification at the top, uh, I don't think, has been good for the sport. Uh, in Australia, our major sporting codes really do prize that notion that you can move from rags to riches, from bottom to top. And we've seen a whole lot of those uh, uh, movements, including from the Prime Minister's own team, South Sydney, which was uh, on the verge of relegation from the competition and then went on to win a decade later. So this, this notion of fluidity is important to Australian sports. You're quite right. There's a couple of international ones that don't fit the mould. Uh, but we don't see enough of it in the Australian economy. We don't see enough of it in Australian society, where being born into poverty uh, often makes it very hard to, uh, to move up the ladder. Can I ask you, Andrew, I mean, one, one of the things that you discuss in the book that I really find, my first response to it was hostile, I'll confess, but it's just, it's, it's because of, no, 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 it's, it's because of who I am and sort of certain values. Uh, but then the more I think about it, I'm, I'm both, I'm troubled and curious so you make a great deal of the importance of free agency for players, players being able to move from, say, an unhappy situation at one club to a happier situation at another. The phenomenon that players that move from one club to another oftentimes perform better. You alloy that to the observation about less geographical mobility within Australian society, less employment switching, job switching within the Australian economy over the last two years. It is, it is kind of interesting that, I mean, one of the things that I value in sport, and I guess one of the things that I value in social life, is something like continuity. So in sport, younger players coming up through the ranks, the development, the slow cultivation of team culture, a single, I mean, my favorite team of all time is the 1980s Celtics, and they essentially had the same group of players for the better part of a decade with younger talent coming through. And there was an ethos there. There was a culture that was undeniable, that was inseparable from that team. And now, as Waleed was describing before, we have the formation of kind of super teams due to the kind of the free agentification <laughs> of so many players. And I'm also... And, just... and sorry, in the AFL, it was a similar story because once yeah. free agency came in, you did have this phenomenon, and my, my team benefited from this, of the best team being the most attractive destination for the free agent. Yeah. And so it did compromise the sort of the, the socialism of the system as it was built, um, that the teams at the bottom get the most support so they can rise to the top. But then you also have the kind of the natural benefits of kind of living in a particular place. We often talk about kind of, you know, the cultivation of community and of social bonds as being one form of good that is then often undermined by too much worker mobility, transplanting oneself to a new... So I'm just, I'm just wondering, it seems to me that it's not so much that there is a good and a bad, but there may well be competing goods. One is a good of team culture and of communal bonds, and another is a kind of a maybe more individual or more solitary good of fulfillment in particular work or, say, the immediate good of success of a particular business or of a team a particular season. How do you... Um, you must have thought about that. I'm wondering how are you reconciling those two competing goods? 
Oh, what a great question, because I do love community and the community that comes from knowing those around you. Uh, and so I guess what I, the kind of mobility I'm after is a mobility which allows people to move if they want to. Uh, so free agency meant that in the 2021 AFL Grand Final, a quarter of the players had come from another team. Uh, and that gave more diversity and the gains from diversity that come from working with people who just have new and fresh ways of doing things. You know, you think about the 1980s Celtic, one of the features that I worry about in that team is the fact that the Celtics were one of the last teams to, uh, to play African-Americans. Uh, and uh, that impediment on mobility probably meant that the Celtics were missing out on new styles of play, new ideas, and, of course, the African-American players themselves missing on the ch- out on the chance to play. Whoa! I'm so sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. So were they the first club to play an all-black uh, starting five? Oh, oh, well, well, not only were they the first NBA team to draft a black player, Chuck Cooper in 1950. They were also they also had the first all black starting lineup in 1964. They had the first black coach in Bill Russell from 1966 to 1969. I mean, the, you know, one of the fascinating things for me about about the Celtics is Boston is a notoriously racist city, and you think about the development of this team, their elevation of a kind of superstar white player, one of the first superstar white players is. Kind of, the, it, it, it's complex. I mean, the racial politics of Boston and the Boston Celtics is immensely complex. But I think I can say, as a matter of fact, that the Celtics have been long, a long way out ahead of where Boston was in terms of race relations as a city, and certainly in terms of the culture of the club. But Scott, would you agree with Andrew's description of that 1980s team? Uh, not really, no. I mean, three of their central players, Cedric Maxwell, Dennis Johnson, Robert Parrish, uh, all Hall of Famers, uh, all African-American, all essential, essential figures to any success uh, that they had. It was more, I think there's something else going on, which is that if you hold on, and this may actually underwrite Andrew's other point, they held on to their players too long, which meant that when things began to break down, things really broke down and the 1990s and most of the 2000s were a wilderness for the Celtics. So, so that, that's another kind of stagnation that, of course, can take place when you hold on to a culture for too long. And right. you think and about LeBron James' comment, comments about Celtic fans and uh, going, what do you yeah, say, racist but, as? Yeah, 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 but he's got, he's got skin in the game. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to... I do think that's some of this conversation... That's a certain interested comment that I'm not going to... So I feel like some of this conversation is skewed by Scott's love of American sport. We tend to, we tend to, well, particularly basketball, we tend to forget they're Americans as well. And that's partly, I think, what inflects some of the perhaps egotistical posturing that you're critiquing here, Scott, which I don't necessarily recognise from every other sport. Yeah, true. But, uh, but uh, Andrew, the, the broader point about player mobility is really interesting mm. because one of the celebrated things about any player is where they turn down the opportunity to go to a big club that wants them or a more successful club in that moment to, to stay, you know, a one-team player. I think of um, Stephen Gerrard as the classic example, but didn't win the Premier League with Liverpool ever and is a Liverpool legend partly because of that, mm. um, was courted by all sorts of teams that would have delivered him all sorts of silverware. Now, I know what you might say is that was his choice and what I'm after is people being able to make that choice. But what I'm interested in is the the sort of it's the resonance of that choice it's that that offers a value that is deeply uneconomic if you like because it didn't deliver you know the economic benefits to Stephen Gerrard in the form of silverware it didn't deliver any of those economic benefits to the Liverpool fans who didn't see their team win a Premier League um, in his era it delivered something more and I wonder if the lesson there is actually that market inefficiency <laughs> is a good thing if you use broader than economic lenses and that by using an economic lens to, I don't know, draw lessons from these things, you might be, I don't know, compromising something more or missing something more. 
Well, I mean, I think about the players who were unable to move as a, as a result of uh, prior to the free agency reforms, and they weren't necessarily happier in their teams. Uh, there's uh, non-compete clauses and no-poach clauses, which makes it harder for people to leave their firms and set up a competing organisation or to move to a rival. Uh, and we've even seen illegal uh, instances in which employers band together to agree that they won't uh, poach each other's uh, workers. All of those things not only drive down wages, but also take away opportunities from people who would otherwise have benefited. Uh, you know, the, uh, the fact that stamp duty is a big impediment to geographic mobility is one of the things that troubles me. I don't want everyone to move house every year, but I would like people who see an opportunity in another, another uh, part of the country to be able to go there without paying a huge economic price. Right, but if we take that analogy further and the analogy with sport further, if we freed up geographic mobility so much, that would necessarily compromise community, wouldn't it? Because you'd be much more likely to wake up one day and find that your neighbours are completely different to what they were a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago. No, that's completely right. So if you go back uh, 50,000 years, all humans are living in bands of about 150 people. Everyone knows everyone else from birth to death. Uh, that society is incredibly tightly bonded, but it misses the benefits of diversity that come from living in a large cosmopolitan city. The idea flow, the culinary benefits, the intellectual gains. Uh, diverse teams work better, diverse companies are more effective, diverse cities tend to be more productive. So we get the gains from diversity, and, and yes, that means meeting new people, and, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's part of, of living a good life. I think we live uh, at a higher standard of living than our ancestors of 50,000 years ago, despite the fact that they were so tightly bonded. Andrew, one of the things that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't see the name pop up, but maybe it did, but the, the name that I had sort of constantly uh, echoing through my brain as I was reading your book, it was, uh, was uh, Louis Brandeis's uh, critique of uh, antitrust behavior and especially his condemnation of what he called the curse of bigness, the kind of the mm. tendency to centralize, to monopolize. And the other thing I suppose against myself, this is why my head is a really, really conflicted place, uh, was a, a description of uh, the Lake, the, one of the Lakers' most successful coaches, Pat Riley, who said that one of the problems that overwhelms any fully functioning teams, what he called the curse of more. In other words, you win one year and then everybody who contributed to that wants more for themselves. It seems to me that you've got the anti-monopolistic pro-competition element to your book, which is absolutely vital. And I think competition as a way of bringing the best, as a way of, uh, of achieving important degrees of both individual and social excellence. I think that's almost unquestionable. But then you've got this other curse, the curse of more, namely not willing to sacrifice if my uh, gains lead to the immiseration of somebody else. Again, I'm just wondering how you hold those two things together. Say the importance of competition on the outside, but also the importance of self-restraint for the sake of the common good on the inside. That, it seems to me, are, the, are two of the great lessons of sport for society as a whole. Yeah, so I'm so glad you brought up uh, Louis Brandeis. He was in the 50,000-word uh, version of this book, but oh, not great. in the 25,000-word <laughs> version. Uh, and, uh, you know, Fair Game really is inspired in, in its discussion of competition by the move of economics away from the so-called Chicago school towards the so-called New Brandeis school, mm. which does worry about size for its own sake. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, at their very best, corporate Australia does recognise that it, size isn't everything and that dominating a market and maximising shareholder value is not the only thing that a firm's created for. Uh, that firms are also about looking after their customers, their workers and the broader community. Uh, and firms that do that effectively tend to hold on to staff longer, they tend to have uh, more collegial relationships with the unions, uh, they tend to give back to the community through so, uh, social uh, programs uh, and they're also aware of their, uh, their responsibility for uh, addressing climate change. Uh, responsible companies Companies really aren't just thinking about their size, uh, they're also thinking about the good that they can do to the community. 
But what about the workers? Because they're the analogue of the players, right? Mm. And what Scott's talking about, I think, which you see play out over and over again in salary-capped sports, Mm. is the only way for a good team to remain a good team and stay together is for players to accept less than their market value. That's right. That's right. That's the only way they can do that. And once you do that, that, like, is that something you're prepared to ask of workers? It certainly shouldn't be. I mean, you think about the uh, 2017 deal by the Rugby League Players Association, which saw the lowest paid players get a 25% pay increase. Uh, I didn't see any uh, hit to the overall performance of Rugby League as a result of that settlement. It seemed to make total sense. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think the same about uh, penalty rates. Uh, Paying people a little bit more for working on the weekends is an expression of kindness to them and to their families and it's also a reflection of uh, the the notion that we need to share the benefits uh, somebody for somebody to be having lunch in a cafe on a public holiday someone else has to be serving them in a mm. cafe on a public holiday sure. uh, and so the far-sighted businesses recognize that they simply can't have low-paid workers and high-paid customers that ultimately your customers are your workers mm. granted also, and agreed but the fact remains, even with the pay bump that the Players Association negotiated, that just changed, that just reset the market rates. If you, if you wanted to play for the Melbourne Storm or you wanted to play for the Sydney Roosters, for example, you would have to accept less than you would get if you went to the West Tigers or to the Canterbury Bulldogs because those are great clubs. They are managing strong rosters They've just won premierships in recent history. I think 2017, the Storm did win it. Uh, the Roosters won a few years before and then a couple of years after that. So these are th- these are clubs that work by somehow coming up with a way to pay less than market rate. So the sacrifice here isn't this... It's, it's a different sort of sacrifice, isn't it, to the one that says I'm paying more at a cafe in order to fund the penalty rates of the person who's working because they're giving up what we regard as a society as sacred time so the weekends or Sundays particularly. Um, and one issue I think that you do touch on kind of in the book is the way that the notion of sacred time is kind of withering away, mm-hmm. as, you know, which I think is a really important observation. But, but well, it's a different sort of... of a sacrifice, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one that actually says, no, it's a cap-and-trade system <laughs> kind of, right? <laughs> with salaries for players. Well, you are reflecting the fact that the very best kind of job not only brings a fulfilling pay packet, but also brings satisfaction at work. And one of the things I worry about jobs more more generally is that we've uh, t- moved away from the notion of the dignity of work. Mm-hmm. I really admire Michael Sandel's observation that uh, too much of pop culture looks down on working class men. Think about the way in which dads are portrayed in All in the Family or The Simpsons. Uh, and that really it's, it's sport is one of the few areas in which uh, Braun is celebrated uh, and which a successful working class bloke can really be seen as uh, somebody who's put up on a pedestal. I'd like to see more of that in how we regard workers more generally, uh, that philosophy that all work has dignity. Hmm. Andrew, I think we can all say it's a very stimulating book. I love the synthesis. I love just the fact that you even thought to do it. Um, and I love that you've made yourself available to speak with us on the minefield today. So thank you very much. We'll release you back to your political slash parliamentary duties, such as they are at the moment. Um, and uh, no doubt we'll speak to you again. Real pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Andrew Lee, Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT, and uh, more importantly, the uh, author of a new book, which is called Fair Game, uh, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.